Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. Uh, today, we're talking politics with our associate editor, Matthew Sipman. And following that, assistant editor Griffin Olenek and managing editor Kate Lucky speak with the poet and writer Eliza Griswold, whose new book of poems is If Men Then. This is the Commonweal Podcast. <laughs> So I'm here with our associate editor, Matt Sitman. It's the immediate aftermath of the New Hampshire primary and several days after the uh, Iowa caucus. And we're here to talk about the state of politics and mostly the Democratic campaign. Yeah. And so, Matt, we're uh, 12 hours since polls closed in New Hampshire and results are out. What are your general thoughts about what's happened to this point? Well, I want to welcome listeners to the Commonwealth Decision Desk, yeah. our uh, cutting edge campaign election operation here. But it's tough to say what's going on right now in the sense that Bernie Sanders was first or second in Iowa, mm-hmm. depending on how you count it. He won narrowly in New Hampshire last night. Mayor Pete was nipping at his heels in both contests. Klobuchar came in a strong third mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, winning about 20 percent. And so really, I think there's a lot of uncertainty right now. I know that's kind of a cliche thing to say, but I do think it's true that Really, in some ways, the stories we know for sure are the negative stories that Biden has sunk precipitously, that he seems to be on his way out. Warren has declined pretty sharply, too. She didn't clear 10% in New Hampshire. So neither her nor Biden won any delegates out mm-hmm. of New Hampshire last night. I think Warren has a better case moving forward. She's still doing well in California. Mm-hmm. There's some states where she definitely will win delegates, but there's no clear front winner yet. yet. Bernie's stuck at about 25% right now. Mm-hmm. What would you so, describe, I, you know, mentioned Warren, and, and we'll get to the, the other candidates as well, but just since you mentioned her right off the bat, what do you ascribe her downward trending to? Because she sort of seemed the one, at least for a time, to sort of be able to claim the progressive mantle for people right. who were a little cautious about Bernie, mm-hmm. uh, but also sort of kind of put a you know foot on the middle as well. Yeah. So she would seem in some ways to, to, to address a lot of the angst among Democrats yeah. about sort of satisfying yeah. these, the, these two. And she's wings. a woman, too. And, she's a woman. And, and I think coming out of 2016, you know, that matters, too. So I think she had the best theory mm-hmm. for why she could be and mm-hmm. should be the nominee. And I still think it's a bit unclear what happened. I do think the shift on Medicare for all hurt her in some mm-hmm. way. I, I don't know if the campaign would agree with that or not. I don't know if the numbers exactly back that up. But it seemed like she never really broke through and won the leftover. Mm-hmm. And so she tacked back to the center a bit, mm-hmm. started running as the unity candidate. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like that didn't really work. And I would just say, too, the campaign, especially driven by the media, wants novelty. And she might have just peaked a little she early. That, yeah, yeah, right. Because uh, she was really at her strongest, what, maybe mm. back in September and October. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that matters too. And Klobuchar has kind of hit that novelty point at mm. just the right moment. Mm-hmm. And it did allow her to surge a little bit in Iowa, but then especially in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know what it looks like, what her path looks like going forward. Yeah. The Warren sinking, it, I'm not sure I have a great explanation for it yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, too, we talk about, I guess, what the sort of the media pushes and there's sort of a, a whoever the, the novelty seems like at the moment. But this sort of overlooks what I think we have to sort of pay attention to as well, which is what's a candidate's ground game like? And I think certainly you've made the case, too, that the Sanders campaign has an amazing ground game. Yeah. People look at these first two contests and say, oh, Bernie's stuck at about 25 percent. 
he might not be able to really put the coalition together. I do view Bernie's first two performances as much more impressive than I think some mm-hmm. commentators in the sense that both of these states are about 95% white. Mm-hmm. They're older. N- those are not demographics Bernie does well, especially well with. And so I actually think taking all that into account, the fact that he was able to grind out narrow wins is actually pretty impressive in a way. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if he'll be able to expand on that or not. Go back and look at polls two or three months ago. It was not clear at all Bernie would do this well in Iowa mm-hmm. and New Hampshire, but he has. And I think that is a testament to the volunteers he's able to, to drum up, the campaign organization on the ground, the canvassing they mm-hmm. do, the phone banking, the mm-hmm. fundraising. Being able to win in this, these narrow ways in states that aren't very favorable to him says something about the strength of his operation. Mm. We've talked a little bit here in the office and amongst ourselves as well about sort of this uh, phenomenon among Democrats who are voting. And obviously, uh, I think there's this uh, energy in the sense that President Trump needs to be defeated, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, this is where the energy seems to be, but this sort of tends to mm-hmm. translate into concerns over yeah. who can beat him. And thus, I think Democrats find themselves sort of worrying about things like electability mm-hmm. as opposed to say, well, I really like this candidate. Because, you know, because he or she answers my needs is addressing things I would like to see addressed. Do you sort of sense that same phenomenon? And and isn't there? Well, I'll let you just take up. Well, it's interesting. The turnout in New Hampshire was quite good. It exceeded 2016 and probably even matched 2008 and maybe went beyond it a bit. Mm. But the turnout in Iowa was lower. And one of the reasons I heard speculated this might be is because they said, well, we're going to vote for any Democrat. Mm-hmm. So the idea of getting out to support a particular one of them in the caucus didn't mm-hmm. really activate people the same way. And so Democrats are willing, I think, to back anyone who they think can beat Trump. And that's kind of what they mean by electability. Mm-hmm. But the downside to that is you end up thinking about how other people will perceive a nominee mm-hmm. rather than basing your vote on, this is who I'm really excited about. Go with your guess. This is who I believe yeah. in. And I don't know if you can ever really game that out mm-hmm. in a way that's effective, trying to imagine how some semi-mythological swing voter might react six months from now to yeah. this or that candidate. I'm just not sure that's a calculation you can make and at some level or make effectively. And at some level, you just have to really, I think, ask who can excite the people on your side. So that's a good segue into we've got Nevada coming up, we've got mm-hmm. South Carolina coming up. Who's going to excite people in, in those places? Yeah. And then, of course, Super Tuesday after that, by which yeah. point we'll probably have a much clearer sense of what's happening. Yeah. Well, I think one way of looking at it is to say that despite Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar doing well in Iowa and New Hampshire, it's not clear where they go next. Mm-hmm. What is the next state where they can really compete and possibly win? So at this point, you have really two or three truly national campaigns, Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg, mm-hmm. who we haven't talked about mm-hmm. yet. They really have operations, I think, in at least for Bloomberg, all the Super Tuesday and post-Super Tuesday states. And Bernie, of course, does too. They're competing everywhere. Warren, I think, you know, she's competing very strong in, in Hardin, California, but she doesn't have the money that Bernie does. And she mm-hmm. doesn't have, yeah. well, no one, God doesn't have Michael Bloomberg's money. Right, right. He's spent almost 300 million so far on just TV ads, I believe. So those are the two national campaigns. So it's really not clear how this is going to play out. We have Nevada coming up in South Carolina. I think Bernie will do pretty well in both states. Mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable. We haven't had a pull out of Nevada since early January. 
South Carolina, Biden's been leading, but he's tanking mm-hmm. that, you know, overall. So it's not clear he'll pull it out there. So I think it's really murky how the next few weeks are going to go. But I do think the first four states, Bernie's going to come out of it probably with a few wins mm-hmm. and probably the notional front runner. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know, like Michael Bloom, where there's going to be a debate coming up. Bloomberg might be on the stage. Yeah. It seems to me it's entirely possible he'll have a glass jaw. And you have Bernie and Warren and Klobuchar going after him. Right after him, yeah. And he might just not have a yeah. great answers on yeah. race, on policing, on, well, the fact that he was a Republican for most yeah. of his life. Obviously, I think- On his personal wealth. Yeah. And, and you do get the sense, especially with Bernie and Warren, that they- would love nothing more than an honest to God billionaire who's yeah. not as nice as Tom Steyer. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the best billionaire out there, uh-huh. I think. The only billionaire uh-huh. I really like. But, you know, they would love to have Bloomberg on stage to just treat as a punching bag because yeah. um, yeah. he's everything yeah. they're running against in yeah. a way. And so Bloomberg could just tank mm-hmm. and th- this could be a bubble he basically paid for. Or, I don't know, he could have more staying power than someone like me wants to consider the prospect of right now. I, I would sort of, if I wagered, if I was a wagering person, I'd say the latter. And not necessarily happily myself either. Yeah. Um, this is all playing out, of course, too, against the backdrop of Donald Trump's acquittal in the Senate on the impeachment mm-hmm. charges. When some senators, I guess uh, Susan Collins in particular, sort of hopefully said, well, he's learned his lesson and he'll start <laughs> behaving now. But of course, what we've found in the... Uh, 10 days or so since acquittal. Uh, the opposite is true. The vindictiveness being expressed through firings, through the marching out of uh, Colonel Vinman from the White House. And now, of course, we have this uh, just Justice Department scandal regarding the sentencing of uh, Roger Stone. And I think this raises the stakes for this election more than just it's an anti-Trump election. Mm-hmm. I think we're really sort of having to face facts about what Donald Trump post-acquittal really means uh, for this country yeah we are and it's not looking good yeah um he's totally unleashed at this point there's no check on him once he was acquitted by the senate i think he's empowered Mm. and we know attorney general barr you know nominally the justice department should be some kind of if not checked directly but obviously the attorney general is appointed by the by the president Mm -hmm. but you know you hope for some honesty integrity Mm -hmm. when it comes to the legal dealings and issues surrounding the president. And obviously, Barr is himself a deeply authoritarian man who thinks the president can essentially do anything he wants because he's the president. And that's really disconcerting, especially heading into an election. Mm-hmm. So sorry, listeners, this is the, the dark view. But basically, we have Trump unleashed. He has an incredibly well-financed, well-oiled re-election machine. And Right now, his approval rating's at 49% in the latest Gallup poll. Uh Unemployment's low. The economy, at least by certain numbers, is doing well. And so that means I think he has to be the favorite to be Mm reelected. And it'll be very difficult to defeat him. And I think people should brace for that and know that that's ahead of us. And what's at stake, really, I think, is whether you'll have something like a multiracial democratic system of government that moves in a slightly more European welfare state kind of social order, or whether we're going to double down on the white supremacy and whether 40% of the population, basically the dwindling, aging white population, combined with our deeply undemocratic institutions, whether that's kind of a downward spiral that 
fuels the very mm. authoritarianism that Trump is putting on display, meaning to keep control mm -hmm. as a minority, mm. you, it kind of ups all the terrible things you have to do. To, you have to basically deport enough people, jail enough people, and disenfranchise enough people to mm -hmm. keep your majority. And it's interesting that that is what Trump seems to and be trying are, to do. And these things are all Or happening. you cower them into... Yeah. you know just kind of no longer Submission. existing as public yeah. public yeah. people right and we saw that with the the census mm -hmm. uh, what they were doing the gerrymandering i mean there's lots of dots you can connect to really emphasize that this election is it's about defeating donald trump for the democrats and i, but I and i hate to you know use the mr smith goes to washington kind of rhetoric mm -hmm. but i do think there's a really real sense in which this is a hinge election in which the quality and nature of our democracy, there's a lot on the line. Yeah. I'll put it that way. I don't disagree. Matt Sittman, thanks for talking with us today. And also, uh, I should just point out that Matt's got a piece in the March issue, Commonweal. Yes. Uh, politically uh, uh, politically uh, tuned. Yeah. yeah. We'll be taking stock of the primary and uh, some of what we said here will be in it. But uh, of course, we added some extra pessimism and, and, <laughs> and, and Trump worries just for you listeners. Uh, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you. All right. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Okay, so I'm here with our managing editor, Kate Lucky, and assistant editor, Griffin Olenek. And you guys got to talk to Eliza Griswold recently. And I'm curious, Griffin, tell us a little bit about who Eliza is and, and why we were interested in speaking with her. So Eliza Griswold's a poet, but she's also an accomplished journalist. Last summer, she won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction for her book, Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America, where she followed over the course of seven years, a single family in their efforts to confront the fracking industry in Western Pennsylvania. She's also done a lot of religion reporting for The New Yorker, recently about a group of Catholic nuns fighting a pipeline on their land. Mm -hmm. And she's just had a new book of poetry that's been compiled over almost a decade and a half called If Men Then. You seem very pleased when you came out of the interview. And so, Kate, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what we're about to hear. We had quite the wide-ranging conversation with Eliza, I must say. So we started by talking about the poetry collection, uh, its themes of reentry and conflict, and her writing about the refugee crisis, and really its synthesis of so much of the reporting and conflict zone she's done over the course of a career. And we also talked about the state of religion reporting today, and we ended by talking about her spiritual practice. So there's a lot there. Yeah, so it sounds great. Why don't we uh, take a listen? So I thought we'd get started by talking a little bit about your most recent book or your upcoming book, uh, which is a new poetry collection, If Men, Then. And so I thought you could tell us a little bit about what readers can expect from this collection and how it came to be and what are sort of the ideas that you're working with inside of it. Sure. I mean... I would say it's poetry by accretion. I mean, this book took 15 years, maybe a dozen since my last book. Recently, like some review was like a debut poetry collection about toxic masculinity. I was like, okay, it's neither a debut collection nor is it about toxic. I mean, maybe, but like, you know, these are hardly new themes or tectonic plates moving in our society. So 
The book is really, it's a culmination of my trying to deal with, I'd say reintegration after most of my life until the age of 40 lived outside of the U.S., right? So the book I probably started, I'm 46 now, I probably started reporting a book of poems around the age of 30 because I was, or maybe 35, because I was trying to come back and trying to imagine what would a life in America, how does it work? What are the concerns of, you know, a woman in her mid-30s? What do they look like? What do they look like at 40? How do we get underneath some of that stuff? Because I just think it's, it can be maddeningly simplified. It makes sense that you would say that this book has taken so long to sort of cohere because Griffin and I, having read your collection of translations, I'm the Beggar of the World, and then also having read quite a bit of your reporting, we recognized a lot of those stories and themes and snapshots from your other work. I wonder if you could say more about how this collection fits in with your journalism and your other translating work. The confidence to write such a matter-of-fact book of poems really came out, I think, of translating those Afghan poems mm-hmm. and collecting them. Because, so, you know, I spent in 2013... Oof, you know, several months in Afghanistan off and on collecting these folk poems, which are, you know, sung by mostly illiterate women and have been for millennia past, you know, mouth to mouth, ear to ear between women about women's lives and women's concerns. And they are completely anti-intellectual. They are so fierce and they're so beautiful and they're so funny. And They're so angry. And I think a lot of those elements, humor, anger, matter of factness, really appealed to me on a lot of levels. And I think they allowed me to bring my own version of that voice into my poems in a way. These poems are not abstractions. Sure, some of them might talk about Thucydides, but they are so, they're earthy. No, and they're not arrogant. They're not trying to flash any kind of credentials. In fact, they seem to me to be trying to get away from the need to even present credentials. So much of the voice that speaks in in the collection is a voice that's somehow used to having to prove herself. Probably my favorite section of the book are these I poems, Mm -hmm. right? Which are just about the ego, right? Like, what does it mean to have gone out? As we think about matters of the spirit, we think about, you know, who is the watcher and what is the Mm -hmm. watch? This is the little angry archetype who's out there making our way through the world and then realizes that striving, that ambition has burned itself out. So many of the voices that you describe or the characters you bring us in the collection move through violence or move through conflict of all different kinds. Um, The refugee crisis, many military conflicts, conflicts between uh, ancient civilizations or between men and women then and now. How do you write about conflict in a way that doesn't come across as arrogant or angry or self-righteous? Yeah. I think it's pretty angry. I think, unfortunately, I can't get away from the angry. So this book is a project of reintegration and Mm reentry, you know, and a pretty deliberate one. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't deliberately made as a book about reentry. It was a deliberate, actual lived attempt at reentry. Like, I have to exist. Mm -hmm. I'm going to exist. How am I going to do that? Like, what does that look like? And Rome comes to mind immediately because 
it is a place in so many ways of pleasure and celebrating the aesthetic, but it's built on ruins and violence. Mm -hmm. I got a Rome prize, which is literally begins with a phone call where they call you and are like, how would you like to move to Rome for a year? Mm -hmm. Who would say no? (laughs) Right. So I was coming off a series of, you know, more than a decade of conflict zones and ended up angry, like eating like high end gourmet food, like everything organic at the American Academy in Rome and just like angry as a hornet. So in some ways, even though so much of the book happens before and after that point, that really serves as a fulcrum for me. Yeah, And Rome is so present in its streets, in the monuments and the ruins that you visit. And you get the sense almost that uh, this occurs to me just because I've spent some time in Rome myself, that it's, it is a city of ruins and a city that just is built on so many other cities. And so it's so similar to the project of what you're, what I see in it. Um, the project of the self is being built on top of other selves. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about that to go back to the I voice. Sure. You know, it reminds me of the old spiritual problem yeah. uh, that the desert fathers and mothers faced, which yeah. is getting beyond the ego. And glory. Yeah, exactly. And you sort of set that out at the beginning, uh, the first poem called Prayer. Yeah. And you tell listeners that they, they ought to enter into a finer caliber of kindness and mm-hmm. to begin a process of humility. So that poem is about one of my dearest friends, great aunts, who came out of Albania with her older brother and her mother sewed money into, mm. the, coat of, into the hem of her coat and she didn't know it. Right. And she got to the border between Greece and Albania and her brother basically pushed her over the border out of love. Right. So which is just that sort of that's the impetus for the poem, the story of my friends that has lived deeply in me for a while. And then the reality of it is, you know, the way that I defend myself against spirit, but also against demands I don't want to face in a day, mm. openings I don't want to face, is harriedness, mm. right? I mean, that kind of like slumped, I'm too busy, that kind of addiction to busyness, which is at its core egoic, but also feels very necessary in the moment that mm. we're in, right? So, and I use that harriedness hopefully less now, but to try to ward off the world, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, we were talking about Richard Rohr and, you know, this amazing Franciscan teacher and and who's unwell, right, who's dying. And I asked him how dying was a spiritual discipline, how what it brought to him to teach him about. And he said, it's exactly the same as everything else. It's a process of shedding. Right. Mm -hmm. And that he asks for one humiliation a day. Doesn't have to be a big one. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So. In a way, even though this poem is old, I really recognize that in it. Like, how are you going to, how am I going to find the means or ask to have that armor punctured? Mm. How does that work in nonfiction reporting? That is, is there a different relationship between yourself as a lyric poet and yourself as a nonfiction journalist who's going around also, I guess, trying to trying to puncture other people's. No, no. The muscle that I try to work when I'm writing, when I'm reporting, as opposed to writing, which is a different thing for me, but when I'm reporting, this is hard to talk about, but, you know, I'm really, it feels like I'm getting as close as I can to the St. Francis prayer. Like the idea is to be a channel, be a channel all the time. Like how can Mm. all this privilege 
like in all the forms that it comes in, you know, here comes the New Yorker, right? Here comes the New Yorker into this little town or this refugee boat. Mm -hmm. Like how is that tremendous Klieg light, which is such a privilege to get to shine, how is it going to be of service, mm -hmm. right? And how is it not? You know, I mean, that comes up in thinking about some of that Lampedusa poetry. It's mm -hmm. like, I may care for the afternoon, mm -hmm. but remember that I'm serving another master. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm consuming a story to reiterate it rather than consuming a story to get you off that boat. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a good time to transition into talking a little bit about Amity and Prosperity. Sure. So I think Griffin and I, reading the book, were both struck by you know, the level of trust that had to exist between you and all of these different community players who were parsing what it meant to have fracking in their community through all of these different channels, like environmentally, economically, and in terms of their health, families are divided, communities are divided, their church is in some sense divided. And so to me, it just was sort of astounding that you were able to win the confidence of so many different people who may not at any given moment have trusted themselves to know what they wanted or to know what the stakes were, because of course, none of us can see the stakes of our own lives when we're just living them. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk about that, how you came to see yourself as a teller of that story mm -hmm. and sort of what challenges you faced in doing that in a way that felt right. Yeah. I mean, that book, that project is the hardest thing I've ever done professionally. I mean, I wanted to walk away from it so really? many times. Oh my God. <laughs> Especially because, you know, I was afraid. I was afraid of misrepresenting them. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that maybe what they thought was going on wasn't truly going on, mm -hmm. right? I was afraid that the company was going to come after me. But between Stacy and Beth and Kendra Smith, mm -hmm. like I just couldn't. Like I couldn't, they had given this, this experience and this injustice their lives. Yeah, and these are the, just for our listeners, yeah. these are the lawyer and then two of the, the plaintiffs. Two of the moms. Yeah, yeah. Two of the, sort of the key two figures in the book and uh, who are plaintiffs. And then Kendra, who is a lawyer, she's a corporate defense attorney who mostly does exposure, like asbestos cases, defending railroads mm -hmm. and to watch her walk through this and end up on the other side, you know, was just incredibly powerful. And it was harrowing in that very real sense of the word. Like it was just, it was extremely difficult. I actually did the Afghanistan book while I was reporting the Amity book. I went to Afghanistan a couple of times and, and it was much easier. I mean, reporting in Afghanistan is much easier than reporting in Amity. That yeah. is the fact of it. <laughs> And I think you made you made 38 trips to Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was seven years of reporting, right? So that's that's what it takes to do this certain kind of reporting. Mm -hmm. And the authority is, the time is the authority in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And I tell, I teach at NYU and I tell my students that a lot because for all of us, like the projects we work on where, you know, our moms say to us like, you still doing that? And it's been like, 15 years and you're like, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> like once that is done, once that project is done, the time is a source of authority. Yeah. It's not fraught. It's a gift. So especially for, you know, younger writers just starting out, they don't know that. It's right. like that it should be done. It should be done. And no, it shouldn't. 
you know, and that's going to be so- a source of its strength. So there's a tension here between the way that journalism presents itself today and the mm. way that it's consumed often through social media, which is very instantaneous, very reactive. And, you know, it's in contrast with the kind of journalism that you're practicing or that you're describing here, which is slow, patient, observational. I mean, I have a sign on my wall that says process slash outcome, and it has to be the process because Mm -hmm. I is pretty hardwired for the outcome, Mm -hmm. right? And every time that's the case, the actual merit of the project ends up becoming a servant to this outcome that is less than it would have been. I think with the Amity book, you know, part of its merit is watching people over time. At Commonweal, we've been pretty inspired by a lot of your religion reporting for The New Yorker. Hmm. I mean, of course, we love the piece about the nuns uh, resisting the pipeline construction on their property. But I mean, especially for myself, I'm not Catholic and have more of an evangelical background. I mean, it's encouraging for me to see someone who understands that world writing about the sort of resistance and currents of change within it and the complexity contained within it. And these characters like Rachel Held Evans and Karen Swallow Pryor. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your reporting, especially over the last couple of years in these communities and these kinds of figures and what it's taught you or what it's shown you or maybe what you think people aren't getting. So I have been, as an observer of American and really global religious trends, right? I've been watching a movement emerge that has been emerging for longer than a couple of years. I'd say probably a decade plus. That is one of, it's so exciting inside of primarily American Christianity. And I do think it's a great awakening. I do think we're seeing, you know, there's that famous Mark Dyer quote about every 500 years, the church has a rummage sale. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, (laughs) I think that's what we're seeing. I think we really are seeing people in a muscular, radical way reclaim the words, the literal words of Jesus and say, orthodoxy, like, look at this here. I am living. It's not an eye. We are going to live and work as Jesus did. And what I think the media gets wrong a lot, I think it's too tempting and easy. If, you know, I saw this when I started reporting my first book, The 10th Parallel. Part of the reason I did that, you know, I was in Afghanistan after 9-11 and all of my editors for these various publications would be like, oh, yeah, well, people are growing out of the idea of God anyway. And one, it's a matter of haves and have nots. And there was nothing that indicated that about global religious trends, you know, and it's and the people in Al Qaeda were, in fact, quite well off. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, it's kind of got that idea of like third world, there's like a I've not thought about this. There's a component to that of we're all growing out of this kind of much more basic understanding of God. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was misguided. Mm -hmm. I know it was. And I think that in a way, that same editorial voice, especially in our mainstream secular publications, writes off evangelical is a, you know, whisper of something else. Right. And when you go out and talk to people who believe deeply mm-hmm. in Jesus and believe deeply in Christianity, there are many more layers of sophistication and difference within them. And I, in this movement, what I think we're seeing 
I think we're seeing a new alliance of those we might call exvangelical, you know, young people who grew up in traditional traditional churches and are saying, you know, no, thank you. And what the press calls nuns, mm -hmm. right? We have this now 26 million member young people who don't adhere to traditional religions. Well, if you ask most publications what a nun is, they'll say, oh, that's a secular young person. And that's totally wrong. Mm -hmm. Like People who call themselves nuns are usually more devout than anybody else. They're leaving traditional religious affiliation because they deeply want to find out what God, what spirit is in their lives. I mean, it seems to me that there is in America today a lot of fear of all kinds. What do you think people are so afraid of? And why do their fears often take the form of religious fears? I mean, you've seen some of the darkest aspects mm -hmm. uh, of humanity, which you make plain and you say, well, it hasn't really gone away. Mm -hmm. The memories remain. They can be worked into poetry. They can be reported on, but they can't be wished away. You know, there's such an assumption on, on the part of the liberal elite, which is my particular bubble, mm -hmm. right, that, that we know better right? That we can explain away the beliefs of others because we are somehow more sophisticated. And whether it's Amity looking at mineral leases or it's Liberty University meeting with young students of Karen Swallow Priors, you know, that's not the case. It's so patronizing in a way. It's so naive. What surprised me about these stories is this response to them. There's a real hunger and response to read about people of faith across political lines, mm -hmm. right? So I think things are getting worse. I yeah. mean, I, somebody was asking me not last week, well, how are we going to bring people together, right? How are we going to try to solve this chasm? And my easiest answer is to try to find third issues that people care about that are not explicitly political, whether it's what kind of school does my kid go to? You know, what's drinking water like in my town? And try to create alliances out of shared and common common understandings, right? But the truth is, I don't think we're headed in that direction, you know? And I mean, this is sort of the tension in the Book of Homes as well. Like, I remember once being at this silent retreat a long time ago in California, and someone standing up and saying, you know, thank you so much to the teachers. It was Advaita Vedanta, direct path meditation. And she was like, I have felt so guilty about climate change, and now I'm just not going to feel guilty anymore. And I was irate, right? Because I was like, what kind of spirituality absolves us of responsibility to the greater good, mm -hmm. right? I raised my hand angrily and was like, you know, what are you teaching people, right? Like, like in places of suffering, God, spirit is there and we have a, an obligation to go there. Like, we don't just write that off because it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And their response was interesting. The teacher's response was, to expect more of an individual than they themselves have to give is in itself a form of violence. The easy way that the Christians phrase it a lot is, oh, God will get, never give you more than you can handle, which is often used in a sort of, again, like patronizing yeah. and flip way. Yeah. But it is true that our spirituality is supposed to make us more capacious. Well, and then this gets to the question of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was raised in a Protestant tradition, like not even in the like church itself, but the entire culture was about the value of suffering, right? That good only comes from suffering and that our duty, it was noble to suffer. And, and that is still very much part of my, you know, you know, I write about like one of the 
characters in the book is Cotton Mather because, you know, if I get on my soapbox, I can sound pretty fire and brimstone. Mm. To think that that voice, when I'm in that self-righteousness, no matter what the content is, it's off, right? That gesture of condemnation to others is in itself an error, no matter what I'm pointing my finger at. I mean, I think in that, so the old categories we had are breaking down. And you can see this within the liberal tradition. Like I most recently for the New Yorker wrote about pro-life communities. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the level of rage from my pro-choice friends, and that's my, you know, I'm pretty frank about that's my bent, but that I would listen to these people, Mm -hmm. right? That people who were pro-life were more than just innately misogynistic, cruel, you know. So I know that we have to listen across difference and not just comfortable difference that makes us feel good, you know. True diversity isn't just a matter of identity or skin color. It's a matter of ideology as well. And I think this practice of contemplation, so I'm just dabbling in this now, right? Because I've been spending this time with Richard Rohr. So to think, okay, I'm just going to read the St. Francis prayer and see what word jumps out on it and keep that word for the day, right? Or I'm going to read Wallace Stevens and see, like, it's just a matter of like finding something that speaks to the soul, but also that it's incarnation, mm-hmm. right? It's like, how do I bring forth my spirit in the day that I'm in in an active way? Mm-hmm. I sure know how not to do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> right, right. So how do I do that? And, and I don't know. I'm just saying contemplation because I think repetitive, simple, matter of fact, non-egoic, non-arrogant action and non-intellectual pursuit. Although maybe with a little intellectual to let the brain rest in it, Mm -hmm. you know? I'm not trying to trick you or get rid of you, brain. You know, come with me. Last week, Griffin taught me, what was it, the prayer of patient trust? Right, the Teilhard de Chardin prayer. Right. So What is that? Oh, (laughs) well, (laughs) so it's a prayer about basically aligning your will with reality. That is, it's, uh, it's the nature of all change that, you're always passing through some form of instability, even in the natural world, Mm -hmm. so that all change is at one point unstable. And so the prayer is uh, asking God to help you realize that even in this time of incompleteness, that in fact you're changing, and it's not your own will, but God is changing you. The prayer concludes and it says, give our Lord the grace of believing that his hand is leading you. That is, Mm. stop trying to lead yourself. Right. Yeah. And allow right. yourself to be led. Totally. And I mean, what this book is about is not letting go of the will. It's seeing through the, uh, seeing through the illusion that the will was ever driving the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, I doesn't have to stop driving the bus. She has to realize she never was. Mm-hmm. Right? And that teach me to align my will with what is. That's Vedic. That's Satnam. Mm-hmm. That is, I, I'm truth. Right? Like, that's just purely mantra. Mm-hmm. And it's also Christianity. Yeah, it's, Your will be done. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's true. Yeah. That that one too. So it's, yeah. Anyway, what a fun conversation to have with you guys. Thank oh. you so much. Thanks yeah. so much for being here. Thank you. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. 
Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>